Hi, my name's Kenny. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Janesta. Thanks for asking me. Thanks whoever made that poster. I don't know who made that poster, but that was really cool that uh, for the meeting. And um, there's a lot of people here tonight, isn't there? Um, yeah, in the UK we share. We don't normally get that long to share. I've been spending the last half hour before the meeting going, how on earth am I going to talk for that long? Uh, and I realise I've been talking for 33 years in meetings, so it's not going to be that fucking hard, is it, really? Um, like at any, any meeting we go to, or any event at work, you'll know at the beginning of the meetings they normally do some housekeeping, you know, like where they tell you where the toilets are and stuff. Well, I've got some. Uh, first, I swear occasionally. I've tried really hard to stop it. I really have, but every now and then if I get passionate, it pops out. Um, so I apologise in advance for that. In in the UK, there are parts of the UK where it's kind of a cultural thing. We're, we're not as hot around swearing as they are in some other parts of the world. You know, if someone calls you a swear word in the UK, it's kind of normally a term of endearment. You know, it's normally a bit, a bit of banter. We've kind of got used to it, so I do apologise if we swear. I'm, the other thing as well is I'm not like some kind of poster boy for... AA, I've, uh, I'm as sick as the day I got here. And, and that's the truth. You know, what, I, what I've realised is that I, I'm I'm able to stay sober for today and I keep it in today. And then when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm, as, I'm the same as the day I arrived tomorrow morning. And I need to re... So, um, you know, and the other thing as well is uh, my Wi-Fi can drop out. So if, it, if I disappear, I'll probably disappear for a second... You know what's really strange? I um I will give a bit of background in a minute, but I just want to talk about when I did a chair I did a chair recently in Scotland and a convention called the Blue Bonnets. It's a very big Scottish convention. I don't know if some of you might have been there. They they get bagpipers and the bagpipers come in and they bagpipe you in and they walk all the way around the auditorium with you and, and then they bagpipe you up on the stage and by the time you get up there you're really quite scared, you know. So I said to my friend. I'm going to be really nervous. Have you got any advice? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, when you get up there, he said, when you sit down, move to the side just one inch and invite God in beside you. And I said, thanks, Bernard. Does that work? He went, no, <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, but I, I thought I ought to tell you something. You know, no, no it never gets easier, does it, when you share? You know, it's a bit like... Uh, you share in meetings, you, you you get to the end of saying something in the meeting, you always feel like you haven't done enough or you should have said something else. And so I've kind of tried to just let, let go of that. Over the last few years, with just a little bit of background, I first come to AA, well, actually, I came to a number of fellowships. 33 years ago was my first meeting. Um, nine rehab centres later, uh, on January the 3rd, I celebrated eight years sober. So it's been, that's like 25 years of failure and then eight years sober. So that's, it's, it's kind of a long road, right? AA kept me alive and I found this lovely bit of literature. I think it was somewhere in the concept. I can't remember where I read it. It was in the concepts or some, some service handbook or somewhere. And it said in there, 
A newcomer's desire to stop drinking need not be sincere. What a gift that was to hear that, because what it meant was that they understood many years ago that when people come to a meeting, they might come to a meeting and know they need to stop somewhere, but perhaps not in the mind. How many times have people come to meetings and gone, I don't want this? And you look at them and go, why are you here then? Because something in their spirit has brought them, even though, and that was kind of my story. I kept coming back here because I knew there was something here. And I heard you were saying something of substance, and I knew it had depth and weight, and I knew it probably had a solution if I looked in there somewhere. But when I got here, I, I was either damaged or I just couldn't hear the right things. I was too sick, you know. I, not wanting to drink anymore does not necessarily equate to wanting to do the steps. They're not the same thing. I, I knew I didn't want that life anymore, but I couldn't quite get my hands or my mind around how do you do this one? It's very difficult. And thank God, you know, the book's got a number of clues in it. It says that we raise the floor so it hits them. It says that we carry a message. And I feel like when... When people come in here and they're not ready, it's our job to make them ready, not wait for them because it's their job to get ready. It's our job to share and carry a message and lift the floor for them. And, uh, you know, like, um, and that's kind of what happened to me. So I've been coming to meetings for a long time, been listening to people for a long time, and I could never really quite get it, you know. And uh, I've, I'm, I went down a number of rabbit holes with my condition, not just alcohol, but a number of other things. And I popped up in a number of fellowships. This just happened to be the one when I popped up in when I was ready. Uh, the original one, the OG, AA, you know, the main one. And I came here and something happened. Um, I did, like I said, I, I, I used to come in, I didn't know what to share. I used to come in, I used to tell my story. I was under this delusion, having been through rehabs nine times, that if you shared honestly, that somehow that would resolve your trauma or your past or what was wrong with you. And if you were really honest and you were really open and you talked enough and you told the truth enough that somehow you would get well. But I've since learned that you can't talk your way out of this illness. I've resolved a lot of my trauma, but it hasn't stopped the effect alcohol has on me. It hasn't done anything for the fact that alcohol, um, it has an effect on my spirit and my soul. It, it does something that, and that's never going to change. It's called, I can't undo that mess. I can't undo that part of me, you know. I drank the way I drank, and as far as I'm concerned now, there is no other way to drink. But I, I, that's how I drink. I can't undo that. I can't change that. There's no going back and saying, right, well, now I'm going to go, I'm going to drink red wine when I have a meat dinner. I'm going to drink a little bit of white wine when I have a fish dinner, and I might have a champagne if I go to a wedding. That's never going to happen to me. I didn't drink normally before it became a problem. It's never been normal. So I'm not quite sure where I got that message that if you, and, and then it dawned on me, the reason I share honestly in the meeting about what's going on for me, and it's the only reason, is because it helps me here and now in this moment 
to get over whatever it is I'm going through. And then tomorrow I've got to start again. It doesn't mean that I resolve anything. You know, I, I am as, I'm as defective a man now as I've ever been. I came in here with a very defective character. And it's, it's stayed that way. What's changed is my behaviour. But my character remains exactly the same. If I see someone about to put a parking ticket on my car, I still swear inside and call them that I'm still as angry as I've ever been. I don't punch them anymore. That's why I used to swear at them and have a go at them. Or punch. I don't act out on what's going on inside anymore because AA has given me a set of tools. So, But my character has remained the same. And, and, I, and when I've realised that I don't share about me, necessarily in meeting but I had to find something else to share. So I'm going to turn this to my sponsor and it was a revelation. He said, so what do I share in a meeting if I can't? Because I remember once I went to a meeting and I, I told this story about something that happened and it was with regards to one of my children um, and, and he said to me, what did you share that rubbish for? I was, I was quite shocked. Such really honest, heartfelt stuff. He said, yeah, but who did it help? This is not a competition. We're not here to see who's at the worst line. You know, you're not competing with anyone. You wouldn't go into a psychiatric unit and go, I want to become the leader. You know, you don't need to reach the top of the pile. Yeah? You're in AA, that's bad enough. You know, you remember what else you want. What you need to do is carry a message. And I didn't quite know what he meant. He said, I want you to hear, listen to what people say. And when someone's in a bit of trouble, I want you to find something in the first 164 pages and share it, something that you think will help them with what's going on with them and share it so that when you go to a meeting, it's not about you. And then you'll have a purpose because they're now calling it with that. Because, you know, and everything fell into place from the 25 years of being here and failing. The two things I learned from coming to 12-step meetings and failing re repeatedly were, the main one was, if you only talk about yourself in meetings, sooner or later, you get fed up listening to yourself. You get fed up with your own voice. You go around in circles and you begin to see people moving on and you begin to see people coming behind you get lots of sponsees and, and go to uni and be able to cope with suffering and be able to cope with life. I mean, you stay where you were, even though your sobriety time is mounting up and you feel as if you ought to be something, but you're not getting anywhere. And that's what happened to me. I'd get to three years, maybe four years. The longest I did was five and a half years sober. And eventually I left because it got too painful because I, I, the, the man I brought in was the person I was when I left. Nothing changed. I didn't pray. I didn't talk about God. I certainly didn't help people. And I didn't do anything to try and get out of self. <clears throat> you know. So sharing about my background, <clears throat> all I can say about my background is, I'll, I'll say a little bit about it, but not much. I come from an Irish background. My family were Irish. They came over from Ireland to the UK. And I was the first person born with a London accent. So I didn't even fit in my family anymore. They were all Irish and I was a little cockney from London that they, you know, 
I'm sure they felt completely let down. The only thing I did correctly was drink as much as they did. You know, that's about the only thing I got right. <clears throat> and um, by the end of my drinking, if I skipped through all that, I'd ended up in prisons and rehabs and all sorts of trouble. But at the end of it, I remember waking up in the morning and I would, on my body and my spirit would be screaming to the pain, just of my own reality. But I hated myself. I couldn't look in the mirror. I would be shaking and needed to get a drink. I'd lost contact with my family, with my daughters, with my kids. <clears throat> I was in this awful place that only alcoholics understand where you don't have the courage to kill yourself because ultimately you're a bit of a coward, but you also don't have the courage to live your life because ultimately you're a bit of a coward. So you're not living and you're not dying and you're in this space that's just painful and horrible and repetitive and hopeless and going nowhere. And you're just sitting there pouring drink on it, hoping that one day something or someone will make the decision for you either to not be here or for you to move somewhere else. But you're not going to do it because you're fucked. I was just stuck in that spot. And um, that's kind of... The only qualification I need to be in, other than the fact I drank and I used other substances, and there's many things that happened in between, and almost none of them, apart from getting the newcomer to identify with the fact that I understand where they are, they're actually quite pointless, <clears throat> because none of them are the reason I drank. None of them. I chose a bit... When Janesta asked me for a quote out of the big book, she asked me to pick a bit. And I picked one of my favourite bits of the book. And it's on page 155. And it's, it says, although the man knew he was somehow abnormal, he never knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. And that's kind of my story. I never knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. But before that bit, he never knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. It says... Although the man did know he was abnormal, he never knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. So always knew there was something wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was. Because my mum would my mum would say to me most days, there's something wrong with you. And I'd go, I know. And and she'd go, What is it? And I'd say, I don't know. I'd agree that there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And my dad would say, you, you march to the sound of a different drum. And I'd say, I oh, know. And he'd say, stop doing it. I'd go, what? It sounds quite cool. He says, no, it's not. You're being an arsehole. Stop it. Why can't you just be like all the other kids? Just be normal. And I'd be like, what the fuck is normal? But my girl, early girlfriend would say, you're not right. And I'd say, I oh, know. And, and in the beginning, you could convince them that it was their fault. And then eventually they'd cop on and go, no, it's nothing to do with me. It's you. You're, there's something wrong with you. And I'd go, actually, yeah, you're right. There is. And they'd say, what is it? But I don't know. It happened in prison. It happened in every workplace. They would send me letters saying, we're putting you on a disciplinary. We've told you a number of times not to do or to do this. And even though you're getting it and you're nodding and you're understanding, it's written down. You're still doing it. 
I'm like, oh no. And then I'd go on capability frameworks and get written warnings and verbal warnings and eventually get the sack and then say, there's something fucking wrong with you. And I'd say, yeah, I know. And then they'd say, what is it? I don't know. Although the man knew he was somehow abnormal, <laughs> he never knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. Now, it was, I had to come here to find out what it was. You know what I mean? I, this is the place that taught me what it was. It said, you're an alcoholic. And I was like, well, I, I was wrong before I drank. He went, no, 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 you're an alcoholic. We don't mean addicted to alcohol. That's something else. You were an alcoholic before you drank. I'm like, what? Hang on a minute. My, my mind was blown, you know. When I first came to AA, I had a really, really straightforward drink problem. That was all I had. And then it became about a million other things. Suddenly I've got a defective character, I'm codependent, can't eat fucking sugar properly, I can't take drugs, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm shit around women, I'm, I'm, I'm shit around money. I'm, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, I, I, you know, I, I was, uh, I, I only came here with a fucking drink problem. <clears throat> and I realised it was before I drank, you know, it was all before, it was to do with my mind. I was so stuck in self, it was unbelievable. And I've done my, you know, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I don't talk about my background so much anymore or my past or things that happened is I can't rely on it. You know, I just can't rely on it. I, I bumped into a friend of mine a few years ago, same analogy, sorry for those of you who've heard it, but I bumped into a friend of mine who, we were in, in, in the UK here. There was prison riots. I thought it was late, early 90s or sometime, there was these big prison riots. Prisoners got onto the roof of one of our major prisons and stayed up there for two or three weeks, throwing slates off, and they were on the news, and, and there were riots in all the prisons around the country. And I was in prison at the time. I was in a prison called Her Majesty's Prison Brixton, one of the Queen's premier hotels in the UK. And um, I was in there, and there was a riot in there, and I said to, I bumped into my friend many years later, a few years ago, and I said to him, do you remember when we were in prison when the riots were on? And he said, yes, I remember that really well. And I said, they were really exciting times, weren't they? And he looked really puzzled. <laughs> and he said, you didn't look excited to me, Kenny. I was what's your mean? He went, no. To me, you looked fucking terrified. And it suddenly dawned on me that what I do with part with my events of the past is I romanticize them. I embellish them to suit my narrative. I, I, I will change the events of the past based on self in a way that makes me look okay and makes me able to tell you the story so you view me in a way I want you to view me. How many times did I say to in, in when I was young, God, my mum was awful to me. My mum was probably in the same situation looking at me going, why are you such a little git? You know, she was probably doing her best to be a mum. I was trying to make in a hash of being a kid and you just blame each other. And I realised in my, in my 50s that my view of my life has been out of my eyes only. And I've had absolutely no consideration for how it may have looked or been for anybody else 
So the truth about my past is this. I can forget things that happened yesterday. And I can remember things that probably didn't happen from when I was seven. So I can tell you a story. It's completely unreliable. It's like I've, I ha I've, I've gone through stages of making amends to people and I've gone to them and said, I want to make amends to you about this. And I go to them with this big, want to make amends to you. I'm really sorry, whatever. And they look at me and they say, I don't fucking remember that. And what? So it was a massive thing for you. And it wasn't, I don't remember it. I'm like, what? And then they go, I can tell you a few things I do remember. And then they reel off about six or seven things that I did to them that I don't remember. And you end up sitting there thinking, who's fucking step four is this? Yours or mine? You know, you get really upset. It, it, it's the way the steps have taught me that I've been stuck in self. I've been living there. Trapped and tied, bondaged to my to my own existence. You know, my life is like a film where I'm the screenwriter and the scriptwriter. I'm the lighting man and the cinematographer. I've designed the sets. I'm the cameraman. I'm the main actor. And then when it goes out in the cinema, I'm the only person in the fucking audience watching it. No one else has seen in that watching the same movie as me. They were watching another movie where I've been a dickhead. You know, like I, I, I think you know you can play the hero, but when someone else sees it, you might not look that way at all. It's been a revelation to realise that I have to spend some of my time listening to other people. I don't know if any of you get this. I remember my sponsor first told me, "I want you to phone someone and ask them how they are." And I just looked at him and said, why? He said, because you need to practice. I was like, yeah, but what if I didn't get it? And he tried to explain to me that the pathways in my mind that consider other people are so worn out and threadbare. And the pathways and the neural pathways in my mind that think about me are really healthy. And I need to try and make the ones that think about other people a bit more. And the only way I'm going to do that is with practice. And I remember phoning someone and saying through gritted teeth, how are you? And he fucking started telling me. I spent 10 minutes listening to this bloke's problems. And for some reason, at the end of it, it kind mm. of was all right. And then as time's gone by, you become practised. Yeah. It's almost like practising the skills of becoming a human being. I've become better. I've become a better version of Kenny since I've started practicing these silly things than I was before. Never dawned on me that that had anything to do with alcoholism, but it does. Because um, my experience is if you stay unwell, you're destined to go backwards, aren't you? You're destined to go and repeat the same mistakes. I need to be going forward. I need to be plodding on. You know, um, so, like I said, I, I um, you know, It's really difficult when you have to come when you come to the realization that the only person that's ever been important to you is yourself. It's a painful day. It's a painful day. It, some of this happens in a day. Some of it, you know, I it did not occur to me that when I looked back on my history, I had absolutely no evidence of stopping drinking ever working. 
every stop had culminated in a start again. The only experience I've got of staying sober is the one I'm living in right now. I can kind of look back and think, well, actually, I had all this. And I, I, no, I've never, I've got no experience of stopping and staying stopped whatsoever. And I never quite knew when it wasn't, you know, I, I eventually came into a meeting. My story is I came to a meeting and uh, one day I heard this man sharing. And he shared the same amount of pain. He shared his consistent failure. He shared in a way that I'd never heard anybody share before. He shared about God. But most of all, he shared about powerlessness. And I never understood. And I knew there was something about what he was saying and the way he worked and the way he lived his life that I couldn't quite work out. And I didn't necessarily like him very much. I found him very intimidating. He was built like a brick shithouse, we say in the UK. A really muscly big guy. He had the serenity prayer tattooed on his arm. Here, on the side of his arm. And it was flat. It didn't go around the sides. It was flat on his arm. It was that big. And I asked him to sponsor me. And uh, he said, yeah. And he gave me some conditions. And he drowned it into me. He said to me, one of the first things he ever said to me was, you do realise you're going to drink again. And I was like, what do you mean? That's a bit insulting. He said, no. You've got to understand the nature of powerlessness. It doesn't matter whether you want to or not. You know, I'm not in control. I've had, I've had to let that sink in, that, that understanding that the power to choose has been removed. That what I'm fighting is bigger than me. And if I'm not doing this stuff, if I'm not in meetings, if I'm not sharing and I'm not trying to carry a message, if I'm not trying to be honest, and I'll be honest, listen, when you lie, when I lie in meetings, it feels completely comfortable. When I tell the truth in meetings about trying to carry this message, it can get quite uncomfortable. You try going to a meeting where they don't talk about God a lot and share about God and see how uncomfortable you feel. You know, it can be quite difficult and he made me realise about, like, um, he kept saying to me, it's not up to you, you haven't got a choice. And that's kind of sunk in, and it's the very thing, paradoxically, it's the very thing that keeps me sober now. Knowing I've got a threefold illness, I've got this obsession of the mind, I've got, an, I've, I've got a spiritual malady, and I've got a, an, an allergy to alcohol. You know, when I look at those three parts of my my condition, and, and if, listen, I don't know if that diagnosis and that description of a threefold illness is true or not. I don't know. A doctor would tell you it's probably not. But it serves me to believe it. So I believe it because I want to stay alive. I don't really care if it's true or not. I've got a threefold illness. Got this subtle obsession that one day, somehow... I'll be like other people. It comes at me maybe once a year now, maybe once every six months for a couple of minutes. If it comes at me at a time when I'm in a really, really bad state, of my, you know, having a spiritual malady where I can't cope with life and I don't know what's going on, I'm in trouble. 
you know, both of those parts of my illness, the spiritual malady and the obsession are happening when I'm sober. It's only the allergy when I'm drinking. A 66% of my illness is sober. I, I know what, when I'm drinking, I know what my life's all about. I'm already gone. I'm already done. I know what I'm doing. I don't care about anyone. I'm really selfish and I'm the only person that matters. And, and I'm off and running. It's the other part. It's the 66% part of being sober. And despite never drinking successfully, ever in 50 years, not one bout of successful drinking, I will sit here in an AA meeting of all places. An AA meeting is for people who come who know they're fucked from alcohol. And I will say, I think I'm going to be all right. There's nothing more insane than that. There's nothing more insane than that. A, lit, a past littered with failure, sitting in an AA meeting, knowing you've been to AA for the last 33 years on and off, and then going, I think I'm going to be like normal people. You know, that's what I suffer from. Uh, AA is the best thing I never wanted. <laughs> you know, it's it's um it's just uh, it's just hard graph this stuff sometimes. You know, I just have to understand that I'm in the right place. You know, I um I'm not the I'm not the full ticket. You know, I heard today I, I was sharing recently. Um, and this is a real example of the fact that this illness doesn't go very far, right? I'm going to share something with you. I've got a, I've got someone who I follow on YouTube, and I listen to what he says. I love what he says. I really like this guy. He's not in recovery. He's a speaker. He's very famous, and he said something on YouTube, and and he said, um, if you want to know what a man prioritizes, have a look at what he's pursuing. And it, it kind of reminded me of my drinking. You know, if you asked me when I was drinking, what are your priorities? I would have said not dying, my daughters, my job, my parents, my family. But if you watch what I was pursuing, I was drinking, damaging all of the aforementioned things. So my priorities and what I was pursuing weren't matching. And now they kind of do a lot, but very often, if I take a really good view of what I'm doing, I can still have what I'm pursuing can still be a different list to what my priorities are. Because I follow my desires and my illness more than I do look at my priorities. I will make excuses. I will work to the point of not spending time with my daughters, when actually the only reason I'm working is to spend time with my daughters. You know, I will ignore friends or what going to a convention because of a work commitment or wanting to achieve something or money, even though I know that money and work is just a means to be able to enjoy a good recovery. It's really easy with my illness to get my priorities and my, what I'm pursuing out of whack, which is, um, you know, that's kind of like letting you know where my, my illness it still runs the show sometimes. Um, I'm going to share a little story, and, and, and I'm probably going to shut up. I don't know if I've done how long I've been going on, but 
I'll share a couple of things that I always share in meetings. Um, one of them recently, I was it. Um, I share this all the time. I was at a convention. Sorry, Karen, Heather, who's here, Stuart, people have heard it before, Janesta. But I was at a convention and, and I was the chair of this convention and I ran this convention. And after the convention was over, I gathered together all the lost property. And as the, as the chair of the convention, I got to put all the lost property in the boot of my car. And in that lost property, there was a pair of very expensive glasses. And these glasses, I thought, had belonged to someone who was quite famous. They were a singer. And they had a really couple of really big songs in the 80s and 90s. I had his glasses in the boot of my car and I phoned him up and said, Kevin, I've got your glasses. He said, oh, I've been looking for them. They're really expensive. I said, I oh, know I've got them in the boot of my car. I said, I'll send them to you. Okay. In the meantime, you've got to bear in mind, I grew up on a council estate in London where selling stolen goods was a legitimate career choice, right? It, it, no one judged you for selling stuff. If you said to someone, that's a nice coat, and they said, I nicked it, you just said, can you get me one? No, there was no guilt that came into any of that part of conversation. Or, that's just how we lived our lives. That was kind of where I grew up. And I'll bear in mind, I did that, and I took these glasses in the boot of my car to London, and I said to my mum, who used to be exactly the same. My mum used to have a chest freezer under the stairs full of frozen meat that had been stolen from the local shop. Shoplifters would come and sell it to my mum and she would sell it on. So she was as crooked as anyone else. And I went I went for a walk with my wife and I come home and my, I told my mum about the glasses. I said, you'll never guess whose glasses these are, aren't you? When I come back from the market with my mum, my mum had taken the glasses to the opticians and had her lenses put in the glasses and she said, I've nicked them. So I went back and I just lied and, well, I don't know if I'm cut off there. Um, sorry, I appeared to cut off there. I don't know where I was. Anyway, my mum had had her lenses. My mum put her lenses in these glasses. So, uh, she was as bent as me. So I phoned him up and I said to him, listen, okay, they weren't your glasses. I'm very so sorry. And mom, in the meantime, my mum was with her friends at the bingo saying to her friends, you'll never guess whose glasses these are. Come on, I ain't singing his song. Right? So anyway, 15 years later, my mum passes away and I find the glasses and I phone Kevin and I say, Kevin, I need to tell you to make amends to you. I've got these glasses. You know those glasses that I said, this is what happened. My mum stole them and put her lenses in them. But she's a big fan of yours. I'm ever sorry. I didn't have the heart to take them off. He went, never mind, send me the glasses. I put them in a jiffy bag and I sent him the glasses. About three or four days later, I got a jiffy bag through the letterbox and I picked it out and it was the glasses and a little note. And the little note said, these ain't my fucking glasses, Kevin. But so, for 15 years, right, I had something in my mind that wasn't even real. I'd, my mum lied to her friends for 15 years about the fact she had Kevin Rowland's glasses, singing, come on, I leave, with all her mates. 
you know, it's, it's just, um, it just goes to show, doesn't it? That what I'm thinking, you know, how many times, I remember coming, I was sitting in my office at work one day, it was another really good one, but a young man come in to make amends to me, he was in recovery, and he came in, he said, I need to make amends to you, and I said, what about? He said, um, I used to have very ill feeling towards you, and I used to gossip about you in meetings. And then he left. I never knew. Well, so he's now I've got I've got the resentment now. He's just come here, give me this thing that I never knew anything about. So that's how I learned that with you to make amends sometimes, you can just hurt them. If someone don't know, they don't know. Sometimes an amend is what they think has happened, not what you think has happened. And I, you know, you learn as you go on in this recovery. In, in recovery, another another big learning curve I always share is something my ex-wife said. I'm very good friends with me. It's just really strange. I've got a better relationship with my ex-wife now than I did when we were married, which is weird. But I come home from a meeting one day and um, I'm really full of myself, full of ego as always, and my, I come home and my wife said, uh, you know those meetings you go to where when you hit a milestone of recovery, you'll get given a medallion or a chip? I said, yeah. Or the other fellowships where you get given a key ring? I said, yeah. She said, you know, you, you pat each other on the back because you take care of your children now. I said, yeah. And she said, and, and you you look after each other and you take, you congratulate each other because you no longer break the law because you've made big changes in your life and you don't break the law. And I went, yeah. And then she just looked at me really ordinary and just went, I've always done that. Welcome to the dizzy heights of average was the bit that she said that stuck in my mind. Welcome to the dizzy heights of average. Said, it's a really big deal being, I was about four years sober at the time. It's a really big deal being four years sober. And I think she, if she could have said it, she would have. So's the cat, four years sober. Like, you can't sit around boasting about taking care of your children. You're supposed to take care of your children. You know, try getting on a bus and saying to the bus driver, I haven't committed a burglary today. He'd look at you and say, you're not fucking supposed to. You know, I had this... We understand in here what we've done. But when if I'm really honest, every single thing I do here is just so I can be the same as I should always be. You know, I celebrated eight years the other, and it's the first, last, only the last couple of years it's happened to me. At about six years sober, celebrating sobriety was important, but it was nowhere near as important as it had been. The milestones are, it's nice and it is really enjoyable. But at this birthday, on the 3rd of January, when I was eight years, it was kind of 50-50. On the one hand, I was really proud of myself for being eight years sober. And on the other hand, my head was saying, what are you celebrating? You're celebrating the fact that eight years ago you stopped being an arsehole. Like you were never meant to be an arsehole in the first place. 
So it's kind of, as time's passed, I've, I've kind of begun to develop a bit of reality and a bit of humility. When I'm in a meeting, we all understand. But other people don't necessarily get it. They're glad you stopped being a dickhead. But they don't understand why you started being one in the first place. Well, nor do I. I don't know why I was in the first place. I can't explain it. I can explain how AA has turned that all around and how grateful I am for it. But I've got no reason, I've got no one, I've got no way of explaining why I spent all those years doing that in the first place when normal people don't necessarily do that. All I know is the steps have really helped it and it's helped me and I've changed a lot. You know, I've lost, um, I've lost a lot of people in recovery. A friend of mine, Danny Fraser, who died, um, bless her. She took, she drank when she took some Valium and her heart gave out in the middle of the night, one of the most beautiful girls I've ever known. Um, and I know a girl just a couple of years ago who cut her wrists in a bar, beautiful young girl. We know Becca, who, who some of these people know just a year or two ago, who took her own life. My best man at my wedding, Jerry, many years ago, was found in a toilet of a fast food restaurant, drinking and, and taking drugs, and he'd overdosed in a toilet where he'd gone to take drugs. And he'd, what a place to die. I don't know where it was, KFC, McDonald's, Burger King. It was a toilet of a fast food restaurant. That's where he left this life. Um, he was the best man at my wedding. Was, I know there was a guy called Stan who's, but whose funeral has just been announced on Facebook here in Brighton. Someone who goes to football every week, where we go to watch football every week. Someone who is in and out of recovery, in and out of our local services here. Um, he's no longer with us. Um, it's it's endless, you know. It really is endless. I'm not. It's, illness is much bigger than me. I, all I know is when I get when I get on my knees and pray, people say to me, "Why do you pray?" Like, you know, the, one of the main reasons I get on my knees in the morning and pray is to let my illness know something fucking big is happening. Because if I don't tell it, no one else is going to tell it. I need to let that part of me know that there's something fighting this with me. Because I can't do it on my own. You know, I really can't do it on my own. There's this... Um, I don't know what it is about... I spent years not believing in God, whilst at the same time, although I didn't think it existed, I was really angry at it. Well, if I, what am I, if I'm really, my anger towards it was almost an admission of his existence. If I'm so, if I, if I don't think it exists, what am I angry at? There's nothing there to be angry at. But I was really angry at it. And I think conversely, it's because deep down I really needed there to be something. And now I've had to develop this understanding. I've had to put into bed all the ideas about what I had about God, you know, one of the major turning points for me in this program was when one man turned to another one and said, 
it can be whatever you want it to be. That's the major turning point for me in this program, because what it meant was we could put to bed every preconception. Now, look, if it can be whatever you want it to be, and you can't make something up for yourself, it's not really the problem of the program. It's an indictment upon your thinking. And it can be whatever you want it to be. Make something up. You know, like, it must be something. The trouble is, I'm so damaged by what I was always told it was, that I couldn't then fill the void. I couldn't empty the old idea out and leave a space for me to put a new one in. And funnily enough, I've grown up a Catholic, and I hated going to a Catholic church. But since I've come here, I feel more comfortable in a Catholic church than I've ever felt. I feel like I belong there now that I've got this real understanding. And for me, you know, I don't want to go into it too deeply, but I'll say this much. I'm, I'm a mental health nurse. I know it's, it's crazy, isn't it? But I'm a mental health nurse, right? And um, I have a fair understanding of these kind of psychological, psych, basic psychology, the underpinning psychological psychology values, like theory. And uh, one of the major persons in is uh, Carl is um, Carl Rogers. And it's really strange. I'm going to end on this because it's really pertinent. This is how I got to my understanding, which I think is really important. He view, he looked when he was a child. They used to grow potatoes. You know, a really good Irish story, isn't it? In the basement, they'd hold these seeds. And one day, he went downstairs, and a beam of light hit a spot on one potato, and that one potato sprouted, but it didn't go up. It went in the beam of light. And it grew really badly. And it suddenly dawned on them that within every living thing, there is a power that makes you want to reach your potential. That potato didn't make a very good job of growing because it was in a bad place. I've never grown so much as I have since I came into the light of AA, ever. The, the truth of the matter is this. You're growing towards your potential anyway because that's how you're made. Do you want to do it in the darkness or do you want to do it in the light? I was once told by a priest that um, if you don't worship in the sunshine of the spirit, you're worshiping the night. And I didn't know what he meant. Now I know what he means. Whether you're in the darkness or the light, you're going to be growing towards something anyway. You might as well stay in. Someone once said to me that AA was a little bit like the mafia. You think you can leave, but you can't. Once you're in, you're in. You try to turn into the Don if you're in the Mafia and say, listen, I want to leave. He'd say, oh, okay, you, yeah, yeah, all right, you go. But he knows where you are. You ain't really leaving. It's a bit like that in AA. When you leave, you leave and you bump into someone a week later. They know you're fucked. You know you're fucked. Deep down, you know you shouldn't have gone. And that's the thing about AA. If you're here, you might as well stay. There's no better place to be, in my opinion, you know. Um, I don't know where I'll be not. I'm, I'm definitely going to end on this, and it's quite pertinent. I went to a meeting in Scotland recently, and this man said, I've never heard it before, and I've never thought about it before, but he said suddenly, it's really good to be here. And my head... When 
where else would you be? And I'd always thought when people said it's really good to be here, I always thought there, there was an in somewhere in my mind, I thought there was an alternative. It's really good to be here because if I wasn't here, I'd be on holiday. It's really good to be here because if I wasn't here, I'd be at home. It's really good to be here because if I wasn't here, I'd be shopping. There isn't. It's really good to be here. Because if I wasn't here, I'd be fucking dead. There isn't anywhere else. There's, this is it. You know, you will never... This is something that you'll never hear in an AA meeting. You'll never hear one man lean towards another one and say, if this doesn't work, I've got a better idea. You're never going to hear that. AA is for people who failed at everything else. This is the end of the line. There's no AA for the advanced. There's no master's degree. You come in knowing everything, and as time passes, you know less and less and less. It's kind of like, you know, the newcomers are most important, and the longer you're here, the least important you are, but the more important you think you are. You know, um, so sobriety time is lovely to gather, but the more you get it, the more you realise that you're sober just one day, it's the less important it gets as you begin to build it. That makes sense. You know, it's a fantastic journey. There's a lot going on here. Um, I've I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I've got fantastic friends who I can almost call my family. And um, I, I don't know. You know, the only the only last thing I will say is, um, you know. When when they started, when they made this program, Dr. Bob and Bill W, they both read their stories, right? And one went in the first bit of the book, Bill's story, and Dr. Bob said, I'm going to go in the second bit of the book, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. They were two very different kind of stories. One had a miraculous recovery. Suddenly, one wanted to drink for a couple of years. There's no pattern for how you should be when you get it. The only ingredient for success is staying here no matter what is going on with you. It's only people who stay who get to stay sober. So that's the only ingredient. You don't have to have a good life, you don't have to have a bad one. It doesn't have to be enjoyable, it can be suffering. Staying is the only thing that's important. And, and with that, I'm going to shut up. I've got no idea where I've gone on for, but I'm going to shut up now. Thanks, guys. <laughs>